Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, April 24th, 2018, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our special guest this evening is Dr. Zahara Hieronymus, who is an award-winning radio broadcaster, social justice and environmental activist, and professional artist. She founded the Ruscom Mansion Community Health Center in Baltimore in 1984. She hosted the national radio program Future Talk until 2008 and co-hosts 21st Century Radio with her husband Robert. In her book, White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change, she combines sacred elder lore, science, and her own telepathic dreams to look at the special role played by white spirit animals in spiritual traditions and prophecy around the globe, where they're seen as guardians of animal wisdom, each with a special purpose and gift. She reveals how they have collaborated with humanity since the last Ice Age, inspiring spiritual practices and conferring shamanistic powers that occur during transitional times. Sharing the waking vision of white spirit animals that called her to write this book and their message of CPR for the Earth, conservation, preservation, and restoration. She explains how to use shamanic dreaming and trans-species telepathy to communicate with these great spiritual teachers. And you can check out her website, <clears throat> excuse me, which is whitespiritanimals.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Jada, Fiona, and Kathy for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment for our guest. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk Radio. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get one weekly show notice a week, and you'll know what's coming up. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. And for those who need healing of any kind, whether emotional, physical, or spiritual, for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference for you. And if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And please remember, if you want an interpretation of that chart, you'll need to order it at least three months ahead of time to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So first this evening, I'd like to introduce Anastasia with her fascinating Starseed News. <laughs> Good evening, Ariel. Hello, everybody. Hello. Another week has passed. Wow, it's great to be with you. Well, we have an incoming solar wind stream right now. 
a stream of solar wind is approaching our planet and it could graze our magnetic field the 26, two days away. They tell us that the gaseous material is flowing from a northern hole in the sun's atmosphere. They say the stream won't hit our planet head on, but sometimes uh, it will graze our, uh, our surface and produce interesting effects. Uh, they say that it's, they plan, they think this time, it's going to make our magnetosphere ring like a bell. That's happened on oh, when in the last year or so. I thought that was really interesting. Make the magnetosphere ring like a bell. Wild and stuff. Well, we have a full moon coming up on the 29th of this month. It's going to be called the full pink moon. I think that's so cool. Because it heralds the appearance of the moss pink uh, wild ground flocks. Flocks, those little flowers that grow close to the ground. And that is, of course, one of the first spring flowers. Uh, this month's full moon is also known as the sprouting grass moon, the egg moon, and the fish moon. And these names, you all, were used by early colonial Americans and sometimes Native Americans. They learned the names from the Native Americans. In those days, time was not recorded by using the months of the Julian or the Gregorian calendar. Many tribes kept track of time by observing the seasons and the lunar months. The, the moon name itself usually chosen to describe some activity that occurred during that time and, of course, according to that location. So the full pink moon, the sprouting grass moon, the egg moon, and the fish moon coming our way in about five days. And uh, we've had some earthquake activity, of course. Uh, nothing really, really major, but I'll share with you what has been going on. There was a 5.2 earthquake that struck Turkey today. They say that caused significant damage and injured at least 39 people. Reports are still coming in about that. And there was a 5.5 quake that struck near a nuclear power plant in Iran. Uh, this happened late last week. They say that uh, it was in Bahrain, uh, or in Bahrain, an island kingdom off Saudi Arabia, uh, experienced the quake and had to evacuate high-rise buildings. So it was felt for quite a distance away from the place in Iran where it struck. But as far as I can tell, there was no damage. There was a 4.7 magnitude quake that struck southern Fars province in Iran as well. And um, I guess that's it for quakes, but... I mentioned this to you last week. Um, there's another article this week talking about the drought in the southwest. They say that there is an unwelcome worsening of drought across the U.S. southwest and southern plains going on now. At the beginning of the year in January, they say that only a few small areas of extreme drought existed in the contiguous U.S., the largest of these areas were in Oklahoma and in South Dakota. But as the spring moves into place, extreme drought conditions have expanded from Oklahoma into Texas and Kansas, with pockets also appearing in Arizona and New Mexico. Now, recently, as, as uh, late as March, uh, drought in the panhandle of Oklahoma has reached exceptional status and severe drought has pushed northward from Arizona and New Mexico into Utah and Colorado. And as where we stand now, mid to late April, they tell us that parts of seven southwest states have progressed into the condition of exceptional drought. Hmm. And in the Philippines, man, have they been hot. 
Filipinos across the nation of the Philippines are at risk of heat exhaustion and even heat stroke as their heat index has spiked to over 106 degrees, rising to as high as 118 degrees in certain parts of that country. 118 degrees. Philippines is humid. It would be miserable. And it's not even summer yet. Well, from hot to cold in Big Sky, Montana, they had just the other day, yesterday, a thick, another thick blanket of heavy snow covered in southern Montana yesterday morning. They got nearly eight inches of snow and uh, covered the resort town of Big Sky. They say that April is the eighth straight month of accumulating snow for this part of Montana. And that part of the country has set all-time records, all-time records for the amount of snow that they've gotten this year since January. Wow. Wild and weird weather for sure in my neck of the woods as well. Well, sad story, but one that I should share. It's about nature. It's about birds. Scientists are telling us now that one in eight bird species are at risk of extinction as it now stands, unless we do something about it. Uh, Studies show that 40% of all bird species are in decline, and one in eight is at risk of global extinction. They say that a conic bird, such as the snowy owl, turtle dove, and the puffin, puffins are adorable. Well, all of these birds are struggling to survive, and they say that civilization is to blame for the shrinking numbers. They are targeting agriculture and logging as the main culprits and of course attributing climate change and hunting as another concern to birds. They say that we have had some limited conservation success over the past 10 years. In spite of that, we really haven't uh, thwarted what they call the global crisis for birds. They're attributing neonicotinoids, the chemical and pesticides that is the primary villain in the ending of the bumblebees, is also harming birds. They say that flying insects that ingest these chemicals are eaten by the birds, which then suffer the consequences. If you garden, I certainly hope that you are doing organic gardening. Now they say that despite the fact that it's not looking too good at the moment, there have been some success stories. And estimates from BirdLife the world would have lost 25 species to extinction if it was not for the intervention of conservation biologists. They say that orthonologists, ecologists, and biologists are combining to take these species that were once critically endangered off that list because they have been able to repair their populations. And researchers are telling us that, I quote, We could easily feed the world's population and leave room for birds and other wildlife if we were more sensible and reduced our food waste and pesticide use and thought to put crops in the right areas and manage the land more responsibly. So there are things that we can do, thank goodness. Well, here's a human interest story, one you don't hear very often. Thirteen semi-truck drivers line up under a bridge to stop a man from committing suicide. The Michigan State Police, along with the help of 13 semi-truck drivers, 
organized an inventive way to save a man who was contemplating suicide on a highway overpass last week. Officials first received a call about this man threatening to jump off a bridge over Interstate 696 in the morning early. After successfully blocking off all lanes of traffic on the highway below, Michigan State Troopers requested 13 semi-truck drivers to go through their barricade and ask them to park their vehicle side-by-side underneath the overpass. They assumed that that way, if the man tried to jump off the bridge, the walls of the the trucks would shorten his fall and save him. After this, negotiators spoke with the man for several hours. Uh, After they got the trucks into place, He saw that he wasn't going to get anywhere because the fall wasn't very far, and eventually he was talked down from the overpass and transported to a hospital for assistance. Truckers to the rescue. Well, in our science section, this is wild. There's something called the Earth Biogenome Project, and it aims to sequence genomes of 1.5 million species. And this comes from the University of Illinois at uh, Urbana-Champaign. So these scientists are proposing this massive project to sequence, catalog, and analyze the genomes of all eukaryotic species on the planet. An undertaking the researchers will take 10 years, cost $4.7 billion, and require more than 200 petabytes of digital storage capacity. Eukaryotes include all organisms except bacteria and archaea, and there are an estimated 10 to 15 million eukaryotic species on the planet Earth. Wow. That is an ambitious project, and I ask myself, why? (laughs) Just because they can? Why? Do they know something we don't know? Again, why? All right. This is a story, everybody. This is hysterical. Are you ready for this? You're not going to believe it. But then in this day and age, we never cease to be surprised. So here it is. A a, a federal appeals court has ruled that monkeys can't copyright their own self-photographs. Well, this story tells us that a monkey can't sue over copyright infringement of his selfies because he's not human and therefore has no standing to do so. And that was a ruling by the Federal Appeal Court on Monday, yesterday. I'll give you the backstory here in a second. The judge said, and I quote, We must determine whether a monkey may sue humans, corporations, and companies for damages and injunctive relief arising from claims of copyright infringement. We conclude that this monkey and all animals, since they are not human, lack standing under the Copyright Act, end quote. So what's all this about, all this weirdness about? Monkeys can't sue for copyright protection. Well, this case involves snapshots of a monkey called Naruto that were taken in 2011. But somebody did not take snapshots of this monkey What happened? A British photographer set up a camera in an Indonesian forest, and he walked away and left it. And and Naruto, the monkey, somehow tripped the camera switch, 
and it caused the animal to take selfies of himself. Adorable pictures. They went viral on the Internet. You ought to look up Naruto the monkey pictures, and it'll make you hold your sides. It's so cute. It's funny. But um, anyway, according to PETA, P-E-T-A, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, the animal took his own selfie. The photographer had nothing to do with it. And so PETA sued the photographer when he sold some of the photographs a couple of years ago. Yep, they were straining the boundaries of animal rights, as PETA often does, but PETA argued that the monkey owned the rights to the photos, calling the images original works of authorship. PETA's initial lawsuit was dismissed, as it should have been, on the grounds that a monkey lacked standing to sue over copyright. And I quote you, from the initial ruling that dismissed this case, I quote you, The judge said, monkey see, monkey sue is not good law, (laughs) end quote. But PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, appealed this case, and they argued that the U.S. Copyright Act doesn't specify that a work's author must be a human. (laughs) Well, both sides of this argument finally reached a settlement. How did that happen? Well, the photographer agreed to donate 25% of future income from the monkey photographs to protect monkey habitats. Nevertheless, as they had nothing else on their dockets, I would assume, nothing else to rule on, haha, the Ninth Circuit Court decided to rule in the case anyway. Even though the people had settled out of court, the court couldn't resist and decided that they needed to make a ruling and spend taxpayer money. Well, the court, the court, by the way, scolded PETA. They said in a footnote to the ruling that the organization, quote, seems to employ Naruto, the monkey, as an unwitting pawn in its ideological goals, end quote. The court also said that PETA didn't seem to be particularly a best friend of the monkey, Naruto, even though it sued the photographer, and here I quote you, as being a, quote, next best, next friend, excuse me, a next friend of the monkey, according to the court. So PETA, the best friend of the monkey, and the next friend of the monkey were arguing the case. The court went on to say, we have no idea whether animals wish to own copyrights or open bank accounts to hold their royalties (laughs) from sales of pictures, wrote the judge. Peter's lawyer said in the statement that Naruto the monkey was discriminated against simply because he's a non-human animal. (laughs) He said that non-human animals still have a constitutional right to bring a case to federal court when they have been wronged. (laughs) Ah, there you go. All right, case settled. And I have a quote for you all tonight. (laughs) Monkeys are superior to men in this. When a monkey looks into a mirror, he sees a monkey. (laughs) And that's all he sees. A monkey sees a monkey, because a monkey can see the truth a lot better than a lot of human beings can see the truth. Malcolm, this is all. There you have it. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, Ariel. I think I'll give it up after that. I have nothing else to say. <laughs> except <laughs> except I'll be with you all again next week. And from my heart to yours, each one of you, much love. All of you have a beautiful week. Walk in light. Thanks, Ariel. Thanks so much, Anastasia. <clears throat> I'm going to be chuckling over that for a while. <laughs> so we will uh, look forward to the news next week. Okay, so now I am going to get Lavendar's mic open. And our guest, Zahara, uh, there you are. Okay, the mics are open. Zahara, welcome to the show. We're so happy that you're here. Well, thank you for having me. I loved Anastasia's report. You know, when I used to be a daily broadcaster for about a decade, I used to do something like that, gathering things about earth changes and about court rulings and the weird things that happened that were in the news. That was terrific. And it's interesting that she touched on species extinction because that's what the white spirit animals are so concerned about, um, among other things. And, you know, when you look at it was actually the World Wildlife Fund in 2014 came out with something they called the Living Planet Report. And what they reported is that the Earth's wild vertebrate population, that means our mammals, our birds, as Anastasia correctly pointed to, reptiles, amphibians, and fish, declined by 52% between 1970 and 2010. So, you know, we're in what's called the sixth extinction. And on a beautiful level, on the flip side of that, of our ascending energetics, the Maya call it the flowering of the sixth sun, you know, when all the cross-fertilization of civilizations takes place. But the bottom line is we're losing 27,000 species a year. It used to be a background rate of about 1 to 10. And what they're saying is that that this accelerated rate of ecosystem collapse, within 30 years, 50% of all the planetary species will be extinct. And when I learned that and then had the opportunity to engage the white spirit animals, which originally started as a vision in 2013, and I'm standing in front of them, and I knew that these were like wise elders, and I said to them, you know, why have you come to me and what can I do for you? And they went on to tell me to tell their story, but they were particularly concerned about species annihilation, and they said, save as many of us as you can. Oh, Wow. So, well, you know, it was interesting because what I found so, I'm a telepath. I've been doing animal readings since I was a young person, and I talked to the deceased since I was 12. I'm now in my mid 60s. So, I've been doing a lot of the sort of new paradigm, out of body, um, you know, consciousness work, remote viewing, dowsing, radionics, et cetera. I've practiced all of them over the many decades. And the thing that struck me um, about their arrival in front of me, people go, well, why'd you write this book? And I, because I was asked to, you know, I didn't, I wasn't smart enough to think, oh, let me track down these wise prophets of the wild called white spirit animals. <laughs> That's not really the way it happened. What happened was I was washing my dishes. This sounds like a Zen story, but it's really the truth. That's why I like the Dalai Lama when he says, you know, there's no spirituality outside your daily life. So here I am washing my dishes in 2013, and all of a sudden, I'm transported to a part of our property we call the path. We have 40 acres, and there's a lot of woods, and um, there's a path that goes from one end to the other. And I'm surrounded all of a sudden by a white whale, a white shark, a white buffalo, a white bear, a white lion, a white elephant, a white wolf, and many others. And um, anyway, when they told me to tell their story, what they said was, try to tell our story as a whole. And so I went through um, 
a long time to figure out whose story should I tell. I didn't feel I could tell, you know, 30 animals' story. So I ended up with their permission selecting five apex guardians, five mammals, the bear, the lion, the elephant, the wolf, and the buffalo. And what I did before I even submitted a the idea to my publisher, Inner Traditions Bear and Company, who published my three prior work, was I spent a year dreaming with the animals, and I would take a month at a time with each one of them. This was before starting to read elder lore, before reading the biology of the animal or their ecosystems, et cetera, just so I could have some sort of authentic experience. Um, and unlike waking telepathy, I didn't really want to be the interpreter. So I thought that if I could practice what the shamans have perfected and have been doing for millennium, which is shamanic dreaming, maybe that would be a better way to come into rapport with each of these mammals. And that's what I did. So for a year before I even submitted three chapters in an outline, which is sort of what you require when a publisher goes, oh, you have a good idea? Well, show me what it's going to look like. I actually had to practice. So for a year I dreamt with each of these five mammals, and they revealed information to me that they wanted told. And that was sort of the backdrop to why I did the book and, in part, how I did the book. Wow. Wow. I cannot wait to hear more. Lavendar is going to lead us off. So um, you there, Lavendar? I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, okay. Oh, I, knew you were. I, I want you to know that I really honor, <clears throat> honor you and have honored you for many, many years. I have been tracking you and your husband for probably over 25 years in your work, and I've never had the opportunity to speak with you. But I, I have known about your work and what you've been doing on the planet, so I applaud you and your husband for the dedication that you have maintained. You have maintained you. this. Yeah, I think a Bosch Flower person once said. When I first found out about you back in the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she called me an oak tree, oak in the Bosch Flower's endurance. She goes, my dear, you are a grand old oak. (laughs) Well, you know, it it was an extraordinary experience for me. I've been an animal lover my entire life, and at the age of nine decided I'd become a writer. And I always thought I'd write about what else? Animals. And I never had. I've always well I have in the context of as an environmental activist and as an animal lover and you know sort of as a what's in on the street activist since 1968 or so um but I had never really fulfilled this dream I had as a child to talk to the animals I talk about it in the book at 6 years old I prayed to be able to talk to the animals but what I thought it meant was like probably what a lot of people think is you're going to get real smart and you're going to interpret bird calls, and you're going to interpret dog calls, and you're going to interpret raccoon calls, et cetera. But that's not really true. I mean, maybe some people do, but what happens for most people who want to communicate with any kingdom, whether it's the mineral, the plant, the animal, the human, the spiritual, is that you come into rapport through consciousness, and, and this is telepathy, you know, intraspecies telepathy. And that's how the whole kingdom of life communicates with each other. It's mostly the human who has extracted ourselves from this life-talking phenomena. And I think now quantum physics has really made it, um, I wouldn't say fashionable, but understandable as to how it is that telepathy can happen and why it is that I can talk to somebody and know what their animal needs or somebody can call you know, a dowser from a thousand miles away, and they can tell you where to look for water and how deep the well will be. 
You know, I was reading on your book, and I, I ran across the story of, of Coppertop, the, the horse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Would you mind sharing a little bit of, of that story uh, about Coppertop? Sure. Well, what I shared in the book was actually how telepathy works, and this was how I came into rapport with the buffalo. So it's really a story about the buffalo, but the short story is my niece called me about a horse up here at some equestrian training in Maryland, and I didn't ask much information. She called me and she said there's a horse missing, and that's big business. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of horse missing, not just your local farm horse. And um, they had people out looking for this horse. I didn't pay attention to the news or anything. I doused where he might be. Um, I found him very quickly, came into rapport with him, and for four days and nights I encouraged this horse to trace itself back. But all during the time in which he was gone, he and I had conversation. And he didn't realize, A, he had come up from Florida 900-some miles away. It was 16 degrees here. He had left 90-degree weather, came up in a trailer. Nobody prepared him for coming. He didn't even know he was leaving. You know, people forget that animals have attachments and love arrangements, and he loved the groom of his barn, and he loved a filly next door. And so there's some very funny things I share in the story, but the but the end of the story is they were going to give up, all these professionals. They had helicopters out. They had international people out looking for them. Um, and it was a very big deal in the media, but I didn't know that. I wasn't paying attention to the media. You know, when I do tracking, I don't talk to as any of the people involved if possible because it interferes with my own ability to hear and to see and to feel and um, ultimately the buffalo came to help me i have these six white guardian buffalo who lovingly offered to go scout and this was one of the few times really in my life that i asked a spirit animal to help do work with me you know i've been trained that you don't ask an angel you don't ask an animal you don't ask a guardian on the other side to help you until you've done everything you can do on your own. Well, I had done everything I could do on my own to bring this horse back. And so the buffalo came to help me, and um, I realized that we were like at width end here, and they were going to stop looking for him. This was on the fifth morning, and I doused he would be found before the end of the fifth day. So I encouraged my niece to tell the people, don't give up, he's going to be found. All of a sudden, the buffalo, they became winged beings, because I said to them, you know, we have to catch a human's eye. And they did. It, like light refracted off of it. And then within a minute of that moment of my seeing the buffalo refract the light into a human eye on a horse, my niece sends me a text. They just found him. So, you know, people can say, well, that's an interesting synchronicity. And I don't judge what happened. All I can tell you is after, you know, for me, almost four days of talking to this horse and then to find them exactly at the time that the buffalo did exactly what they said they would do was just remarkable. And that's an example of how animals will work it with us. So if you have a dog that's lost and then there's another dog in your family or in the neighborhood and you psychically contact them and say, you know, Skipper is missing. Do you know where he is? Can you bring him home? These are very real requests. And I think sometimes humans make the mistake of treating these um, asks very frivolously. You know, like, oh, dear Lord, help me, or, oh, Grandpa, please, you know, make sure that I get the job I want, assuming Grandpa's on the other side, Um, whatever it is. And these are very serious requests, and that's one of the things I encourage people who are working with animals and totems is that when you discover that a special animal has a particular affinity with yourself and your destiny and your purpose and the work you're doing in the world, if you say woof, 
will you help me? Or, gee, Wolf, I really feel lost. Can you guard me? Can you tell me what you need? And then Wolf says, well, you know, we need more corn in the woods for the deer. Whatever it is you hear. It's very important to follow through with what they ask, even if it seems silly to you, like a tree. I asked a tree once, you know, what is ailing you? And they said, we want more birds to sing it on our limbs. But the limbs were so high that the the birds were selecting lower limbs. So I put a bird feeder at the bottom of the tree so that the birds could sing. And the only reason I'm going through this, and I don't mean to take so long doing it, is that when we want to come into rapport with the other kingdoms of life or with humans, and we intuitively actually hear a message after asking a question, it's very important to take what we hear seriously and not to judge it. You know, when Ingo Swan taught me, he was the founder of the protocols for remote viewing, and he said the biggest problem for remote viewers, for dowsers, for everybody who uses non-local consciousness, is that we tend to very quickly judge and categorize what it is we've heard. So, for instance, I came into rapport with a bonobo um, named Matata before I even began this work with the book, and she was telling me about the land of the giants and the time of the Ice Age and when humans and bonobos were together. And Of course, I didn't know any of this, so I then had to go to the science books to look up to see if what she was telling me was true, and it was. So if you want to be of service in your neighborhood, let's say, because I really think all of us should be working locally at this point as ferociously as we can to um, reestablish a balanced ecosystem and better relationships among ourselves and with the rest of the planetary inhabitants. Um, local is where we all have power. Local is what we all know. Local is where we incarnate and live. Local is our sanctuary. But in any event, um, it's very important to know that when you intuitively get a sense that let's say you're driving through your neighborhood and you notice that so many of the trees are strangling in the vines, which is happening. You know, here on the East Coast, we have ivy that's just crushing them, English ivy. So we have a lot of um, non-native species that are killing our trees. Just go cut the bottom of them and ask your neighbor to do the same or do your neighbors for them. What I'm essentially emphasizing is what the animals emphasize. They said, you know, improve the world around you. And then, of course, I always add, and life within us. Because who we are inside is what we do on the outside. Um, and the white spirit animals, all of them are revered by elder traditions worldwide. And what I found so fascinating when I began the work and my intuition about them is that they're in the star systems above us. And an example, for instance, is Bayer guards the northern part of the planet, the North Pole, the Pole Star. That's Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. Um, Bayer is also said by the Cherokee and others to be the creator's first creation. So Bayer is considered like the co-creator of all and first kin to human. And Bear, when I engaged Bear, it's no wonder he's called healer, which I didn't know until I did this work, but they are the chief of medicine. And they taught natives about smudge medicine and herbal treatments and um, dreaming and incubating dreams and preparing for the future and um, being careful. But, but it's so interesting because when you then look at the association Bear has with the cosmos, he said to guard the spirit. And then lion, when I encountered the white lion, who are um, indigenous to Timbavadi, South Africa, the only place they indigenously remain um, and have been and have been seen and are now sort of proliferating when they're not killed in canned camps or stolen for zoos and things, um, 
they've always been considered the guardians. And when you go back to Mesopotamia, Sumeria, Babylonia, you discover that the queen of heaven had two lions on a leash that protected her. And King Solomon had lions. I mean, lion has always been associated with royalty and guardianship. So when you look at alchemy, the lion is considered to be the sort of the green emerald gem of our consciousness, which tells us we are noble-hearted guardians of the planet. So where the bear was guardian of the north and where spirit comes from and spirit, lion is considered to be the steward of the entire planet. And then elephant, as I point out in the book, the white elephant is sacred to the Buddhist and Hindu traditions. And um, even Buddha was said to have been an elephant in his prior incarnation. And I, my experience of the elephant is that they are more evolved than many humans, that they really are Buddhic consciousness, that they are the most gracious and forgiving. Um, they are also, like all of these beautiful mammals, they all are matriarchal traditions. And that, ladies, was the most surprising thing. I hadn't really thought about it while I was writing the book, but towards the end they really showed me, you know, we need to help you all. You need to see how we run our societies. The mothers and the grandmothers are in charge. Um, and the fathers and the brothers, basically, when they're weaned, go into their own sort of universes together, um, and then they meet. But the traditions themselves, the elephants are taught by the matriarchs, all of them, the males and the females. The same thing with the bears. All of the bears are educated by the mother. The lion, all of them are educated by the mother. The buffalo, all of them are educated by the mother. The only one of these five mammals that has male and female input simultaneously all of the time, though they do have alpha male and alpha female leaders within their pack, is the wolf. All these other animals, after the males are weaned, it's mostly female groups that stay together, and the males go off and find a mate and start their own family, or they travel with other males, and then they all come together to protect their species, or when they're water holes, or when they're hunting together. But what they said about us is that we've lost what they have maintained, which they call an ethos of care. So in all these matriarchies, whether it's the buffalo, the elephant, the lion, the bear, and the wolf, the mother and the child is the center around which the entire culture and community revolves. And they said that's what humanity has lost. And we all know that. All we have to do is look around the world and look at the mayhem we're causing to women, children, other men, the environment. Um, and so each of them, um, in the traditions in which they're revered, the white bear in British Columbia, the white lion in South Africa, the white elephant in India and Thailand and Vietnam and other places where they show up, the white wolf and wolves, you know, all of them and their species. It's just the white ones are white unlike the rest of their species. The wolf across the world it used to be the most proliferate animal on the planet, second to human. And then the buffalo, we used to have 60 million buffalo in this continent. And then the American government decided the best way to commit genocide of the native tradition was to kill off all the buffalo. And that's what they did. And it was really only because of Theodore Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, that we actually have any buffalo. And now the buffalo are rising and they're breeding more. And it's just magnificent. And then thank you to President Obama, who has, before he finished his term, named the buffalo the national mammal of the United States, joining our eagle as our bird. So I consider that a fulfillment of Lakota prophecy, which always talked about when earth changes are upon us, the white buffalo will come again. And that's the other thing that all of these white spirit animals worldwide 
share in common is that each of the traditions that revere them and have always protected them and known about them say they come to help humanity when we are in dire straits, which we are. And they're here to help us. They want to help us become more resilient, to open our hearts, to open our minds, to really take seriously CPR of the world, conservation, preservation, restoration. So the good news, and I do share in the book some of the bad news and the good news, the good news is in each of these mammals' cases, there are wonderful humans doing extraordinary things to preserve the species and their ecosystems. And what I say to people who say, well, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., in the city. What can I do for the bears? I said, you know, make a donation or get involved in legislation in your state so that there's no hunting of bear or, you know, buy up bear books, good bear books, and give them to children. It doesn't matter who we are or where we are or what we have. What matters is our intention to do good. And then you will find ways. And I also tell people, you know, if you feel that you can't do much at all, pray. If you have consciousness, you can pray. And prayer is really one of the great tools that humanity has not yet truly discovered for the power it offers us as a collective society. That's, that's my opinion anyway and my experience of prayer and the studies of, you know, what makes for effective prayer. So all of these white spirit animals are said to be white because they're reminiscent of the last ice age when they helped us survive, and they're here to do that again. They're all revered by indigenous traditions worldwide. And interestingly enough, they all point to off-planet elders, like Sirius, the Pleiades, Alcyon, and Lyra, as um, some of the places our ancient teachers came from who helped us and worked with them in the past. Well, this is most fascinating. You know, I live in the state of Oklahoma, and on our uh, on our um, tags on our cars, we have white buffalo. And, oh, and, how lucky. And going down this, the road, if there's going to be a historic site, there's always a white buffalo um, a symbol to so know beautiful. that just ahead is, is the site. So we, we're surrounded by white buffalo here in Oklahoma, and we, and we love lovely. white buffalo. Well, you in know, fact, I write it's about probably Cynthia. one of my favorite totems of all time is white buffalo. Well, the buffalo, really, the purpose of the buffalo is they're the guardians of the soil and, and the human spirit. They really teach humans about prayer and peace. That's their nature. They just do. If you invite buffalo into your life, you will be so motivated to find peace. Um, and, and what they do and what they did historically and are being restored to do is to turn over the topsoil. And they're finally understanding that it was the buffalo that kept our soil rich so that we didn't have these extraordinary, you know, turning soil into desert like we did, of course, during the um, Terrible Depression. They had gone into monoculture and farming, turned, tore down all the perennial wood brush, um, and there were no more buffaloes, so there was nobody turning over the soil. But they're now starting to appreciate and understand that. And the purpose also is that they invigorate the human spirit. You know, they don't invigorate it as penned-in table food to just kill them off as cattle, because they're not cattle. Buffalo are not cattle. It's a different kind of being. And their purpose is really to migrate the ancient lands, because wherever they go, they bring water. Um, and Cynthia Hart, who owns and runs the White Bison Association, which is now in Ohio near the Serpent Mounds, for 16 years she listened to what her herd telepathically told her to do, and she took them to about five different states by a truck, very expensive enterprise, because they said they had to go there, like they'd go to 
California during the drought and the fires, and they brought rain. Wherever they went, they brought rain. But now, hopefully, they have found a permanent home. But she um, is part Lakota herself, and it was her father on his deathbed who told her, you're going to be a keeper of the white buffalo. So her story is in my book, and in this extraordinary story. And on our website at 21stCenturyRadio.com is a link to her new book, which is an amazing story. She went and lived with wolves up in the caves by herself for a year. I mean, just an extraordinary story. So throughout the book, White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change, which is the book I wrote, I highlight various um, animal stewards who either have created sanctuary or educating about all of these issues that we have to address, like, you know, saving the bear from the bear bile business in Asia. Um, I'm not going to go into it in detail, or stopping the, the killing of lions as trophy or the imprisonment of them for zoos. Uh, the same thing with the wolf. You know, unfortunately, these five mammals being the most significant because the ecosystems they guard over are so major, we're talking about woodlands, savannas, rivers, etc., is that without them, those ecosystems will collapse. So we're talking about, you know, being smart about making the planet more resilient to Earth changes is that if we save, for instance, the whale and the dolphin and the porpoise and then the bear and the lion, and we're talking about the apex species in each ecosystem, they will help preserve that ecosystem. But because they are the ones that men in particular like to kill the most, and unfortunately in extraordinary numbers, they're all facing extinction in one place or another, um, this is what has to change. You know, what we do has to change. Absolutely. We would love to have Cynthia Hart to come and be a guest on our show. W- w- would you tell her that we-, we would love to have her as a guest? Oh, sure. We'll send a link. Absolutely. Oh, extraordinary. You should go through my book and take anybody in there that you think would be a wonderful guest. They're magnificent people. Dr. Gay Bradshaw, who wrote Elephants on the Edge, is really responsible for the entire field of transspecies psychology, showing that This notion that we have species entitlement, the right to abuse and destroy and torture animals by the billions, um, is not, even though it's credited to Darwin, Darwin actually himself felt his greatest contribution was showing that there's no such thing as human species entitlement, that we and the animals are just different, but we're not superior. We're different. We have a different purpose and a different function. We're kin. You know, we, we have different cultures and different languages, and yes, we can build things and make cities, but so can they to the degree that they need them, you know, and each of them fulfill their purpose without any challenge, whereas we, half the time, we don't know what we're doing. Um, Even an ant knows what it's doing, but humans today, half the time, don't know what their purpose is. So the white spirit animals, and in fact any animal and any insect and anything in nature, if you want to really plug in to the beauty and perfection of creation, just watch nature, revere nature, and then support nature. Whatever it is, you know, feed your birds, clean the streams, stop the local pollution, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is, just pick something and do your best. You know, when I first started in this work, I was living in Colorado, at Kreppel Creek, Colorado, and I took a walk one day and I heard very loudly in my head, nature is your textbook. And I really took it to heart and I really went on a, a huge quest after that. Oh, and lovely. it's true. Nature is your textbook. Yeah. Well, so you know, I wanted to was... ask you about yeah. the prophets of wild. Um, what do they stress for humanity that surprised you? 
Well, firstly, to restore our matriarchies, to go back to a matrifocal culture where women and children are treasured as the center of our culture, um, not those who we use and abuse and, you know, destroy however it is we do it. Um, that was one thing. I think the primary thing that I felt so blessed by was the degree to which they are so anxious to help us, how much they want to help humanity survive. You know, the truth is the earth will survive with or without humanity. The earth will not do well without its animal population, without its insects, without its water beings, without our reefs, whatever. Um, and that's what they understand. And they're not as concerned about their survival because they know they will survive, maybe in a smaller scale, maybe less of them. Um, but they know how to survive. And I think that the, the, the beauty, that's what I would say, the beauty that I discovered in their perfection and in their nobility, in their humility, in their generosity, in their forgiveness, is extraordinary. When you think of how many billions of animals we torture to this moment and how many the academic universe is completely structured on animal abuse, when we think about the thickness of that and we call this education or people go to zoos and think they're watching an elephant being happy because it's swaying back and forth, it's neurotic because it's been broken and its spirit's been broken and it's having pathology. So, you know, I think it's right that people call zoos species prisons. I didn't used to feel that way, but I do now. We don't need them unless they're involved in some sort of preservation of some sort of species. Even that doesn't seem to work. What we really need to focus on, and that's what the animals are saying, is stop all this imprisonment. Just, you know, build up our ecosystems, build up our habitats, stop encroaching on our habitats, um, show peaceful endurance of, of respect for all life. And you wouldn't think that animals all collectively are saying this, but they are all collectively saying this. And they're not unaware. I wanted to share towards the end of writing this book, this was at the end of four years of my odyssey sort of as an ambassador, what I think of as the Earth's great mammalian traditions. I was standing beside a single majestic male buffalo. I'd like to quote what I wrote. He okay. was a cherished elder friend, a tribal chief representing the 60 million great buffalo that once grazed on the North American continent as preserver, nurturer, and life giver. We were on a mountaintop plateau overlooking an entire cosmopolitan city where their range used to be. Standing together with such a broad-scale view, he shared that, quote, when any one of us, human, animal, plant, or mineral, fulfills our purpose on Earth, we experience the greatest love there is, unquote. And to me, you know, to have that as my final dream and as the final lesson, that was an extraordinary lesson. And Elephant taught something very similar to Rudolf Steiner. Isn't that interesting? The great anthroposophical educator, mystic scientist, <laughs> saying the same thing the elephant did. The elephant, and I talk about a story where I had a dream of two men, and they turned out to be John Warner, and Charlie Rose, it took me three days to figure it out, and I looked up what could they have to do with elephants, and it turned out each had done programming on the elephant's behalf, but Charlie at one point had met an elephant, and what the elephant said to me in showing me these men, because Charlie had just met one at a mock convention at his alma mater, he was a Republican uh, of Virginia, Charlie Warner of Virginia, um, Senator John Warner, rather. Um, anyway, what the elephant was showing me was that the kindness 
that Senator Warner felt towards this elephant jewel was registered in the consciousness, the collective consciousness of elephants. And so the message was is that when any one of us, and this is what Steiner says as well, when any one of us does an act of love, compassion, generosity, thoughtfulness, prayer of kindness, it is registered in the universe like water for the seeds of the future. So we sometimes, I think, discount our kindness, the simple things we can do to improve somebody's life or something's life. Um, and these are big things. And even if it's just a kind gesture or a prayerful thought or a good word, that this is material of spirit for building a loving future. And I just always find that's what the animals taught me. There is it's love, 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 just like everybody eventually finds that that's, that's what we're all working on is that's why we come to Earth. That's the Earth classroom is learning how to love. I wanted to ask you if you've had any information from any of the animals that talk about the new technologies that are now on the planet, like the cell phone towers and some of the destructive energies that we're um, experiencing because of the technologies that are here. I know that, that some of the bees have been trying to disappear on us, and I was wondering if you had any communication about any of the technologies and, and how it interfaces with the animals. No, I've, and I've never asked them. You know, I'm sure if I ask them, they'll tell me. Interesting, Lion, when I asked Lion what did he think we should do, he said, well, in terms of activity, close the ozone hole. And then he said, in the hole in your heart. So um, I, I don't know, but I, how could it not? You know, they're so sensitive to everything. You know, in, I share a story how animals actually warned me of the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan for two weeks prior. I heard the screaming in my head, and... It just wouldn't go away, and it was horrific. It finally stopped on the day of that event. So I had tuned into like I, what I thought was the animal suffering channel, but it turned out to be their alert channel. I just didn't know what I was hearing. And animals do that all the time. You know, they are now collaring sheep up in the mountains because the sheep will come down before an earthquake. And J. Allen Boone, who wrote the just phenomenal book back in the 50s, Kinship with All Life, which is one of the best animal communicating books ever written, called Kinship with All Life by J. Allen Boone. He worked for the Washington Post, and he took care of a shepherd dog named Strongheart, and it started him on a whole life of communicating with ants and insects, etc. Um, but he talks about how ants will let you know before major storms or earthquakes, just like you learn. You know, nature is our teacher. Wow. I mean, we so do when you know, were nine course, years old, you, you knew that you wanted to write someday, is that right? Yeah, I did. I got a typewriter that year for my birthday. I didn't think I'd become a utilitarian writer. I've written for TV and radio and newsprint and, you know, very utilitarian, and my books are very heavy researched, footnoted. Um, I always thought I'd be a fiction writer, <laughs> fiction stories about animals. So maybe I will now. Now that I've done my work, now maybe I can go play. Yeah. Right well, this book books, is maybe. phenomenal, and... And, and I can tell that, that your heart and every ounce of, of, of courage it took to, to keep up with what you were doing. So I applaud yeah. you for that. Thank you. I, it was, you know, dream telepathy. The quick story how to do it, folks, is before you go to sleep at night, it's a little bit like dream incubation. You want to reach someone you love who's crossed over, someone far away, or an animal who's passed on, or you want to talk to the trees, or whatever it is. The ocean, you want to be of service to the wrens. It doesn't matter. You call them into your heart three times by name, 
wait until you feel what it feels like to imagine just loving them, and then tell them, you know, I'd like to be of service, or I'd like to know what I can do to help you, or maybe you have a question about your own health or your own marriage or your work, whatever it is, and pose the question. And then write down, if you wake up in the middle of the night with an idea or a thought, just write it down or in the morning. And at first, this stuff may not make any sense. Don't judge it. Don't try to figure it out. Just keep practicing it. And I do promise, for instance, if you have a loved one who has crossed over and you haven't heard from them and you really want to dream about them, get a picture of them, put it under your pillow, look at it before you go to bed or at least keep it by your bedside, and just tell them, I love you, I would love to talk to you. And eventually they will come and you will remember. Yes, that's very true. I also noticed that you wrote a little bit about white dragons in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about white dragons? Well, that there were once white dragons, very big white dragons, just like there were big white condors. You know, when Mentata the bonobo told me there were giants when she was alive, when their peoples were alive way back when at the last ice age, um, she said there was also the white dragon. You know, they shared caves too. And so, of course, when you look at the mythology of China, it's very clear. And what I discovered through the dragon and through the buffalo, which is closest to the mammoth bison, um, is that we have come down in scale of creature, including humans. You know, the human-like beings, some of them were as tall as six stories high, and this is not, I'm not making this up. You can go find the anthropological research on it. Um, go to Inner Traditions, and they have wonderful books by Mr. Dewhurst. I can't remember his first name on giants. But um, she was just pointing out that what we think has gone extinct has scaled down in size, and that's what the white spirit animals say is, do as much as you can to make the earth resilient. You know, as like you said, do biodynamic, organic farming, restore the soil, preserve your air and water, rebalance the earth's ecosystems and metasystems, and things will survive. We're going to go through tough times. Earth changes are here. There's no question about it. Um, we can we can minimize some of the suffering, and that's what they want to help us do. We're going to have billions of people who are going to be uprooted from home, including the animal kingdom. So we are going to be in such close proximity. When floods flood, the animals come out, too, so we could be running down the street next to zebras. It's just very important to remember that animals don't wish humans harm, and even this notion of these apex guardian as predators. You know, a bear is no more predatory than an ant. They hunt to eat. Most of the time they don't like to kill. They kill if they have to to protect themselves, their eating area, or their children. Um, but their notion of humans is that humans are just um, don't understand their purpose, which is to be stewards of the earth. They want to know why we're all inside and why we're not outside taking care of our wonderful wilderness. Um, and, and they're here to work with us. So whether it was a white dragon that's now a small Komodo dragon, you know, or a big woolly mammoth that's now a regular old bison, the size that we can relate to, that's what I think is happening, is that we're having a lessening of scale, some say, so that eventually we can just live in spirit bodies. It could also be because smaller-scale Earth species will do better in space as part of our survival strategy. And uh, that's certainly part of what I learned. Well, one of the things that I would like to share with you is that that um, we here at Starseed Radio Academy, we want to support... Uh, a lot of programs on the planet, and I think that we should, um, when, when our monies come, our funding comes, I would like to designate uh, some funds to go to libraries because your book needs to be in libraries everywhere. Sure. 
Thank you. That's lovely. Well, let me encourage our audience to visit my website where if they ever get movies or find postings about white animals, send them. I'm trying to just keep collecting them. White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change is the book, and the website is www.whitespiritanimals.com. That's www.whitespiritanimals.com. So at this time, I, I would like to pass you over to my co-host, Arielle. She has the switchboard. Would you be willing to talk to some people that might want to call and talk with you? Yeah, that would be all right. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for being on our show, and, and I hope to talk to you later privately. Okay. All right, thank you. Back to you, Arielle. Okay. Well, I, I am just, I've had so many chills listening to you talk. Um, it's really striking a, a, a chord with me, and I hope um, everyone else is listening as well. So um, right now, if I just want to take a moment here and let our listeners know that if you are already on the switchboard, if you've already called in and you have a question for Zahara, then you'll need to press 1 on your keypad so that we know you want to come on with a question. If you're listening on the computer, then just pick up the phone and dial 917-889-8292, and then once you're in, press 1. And um, while we are waiting to see if anyone has any questions, I wanted to ask you about a, um, a, a turning point that you had mentioned that happened in the 1600s. Oh, well, this is like one of my favorite areas of um, research, which I discovered when I wrote another book called The Future of Human Experience, which was a synthesis of about 30 years of broadcast work in the new paradigm. Um, yeah, I call it unhooking humanity from celestial markers. And it began with my studying the work of scholars Robert Bavall and Adrian Gilbert, who were talking about the three pyramids of Giza being the earthly representation of the belt stars in the Orion star system, which makes the Great Pyramid of Giza a stellar clock of what they call the circumpolar stars or the undying stars. But in any event, that location, the Giza Plateau and those three pyramids at Giza, used to be what everybody thought of, all the civilizations on the planet, as sort of the meridian marker, the way in which they went about calculating longitude and latitude for geographic locations for the building of churches and holy sites and city centers, etc. In, in 1675... The British Royal Observatory, you know, at, at that point, mariners at sea calculated their own time with the people back on land, so there were different times all around the world. And they decided to try to normalize it and um, formalize it. And so what they did was around 1675, when um, the British Empire built the Royal Observatory, it was to help mariners at sea determine their longitudes there. But then in 1851... It got formalized in that the Greenwich Meridian, Greenwich, England, is now used worldwide for calculating the longitudinal measurements on Earth. And that doesn't seem like it means anything, but it means what used to be used by sacred societies to place their stone circle, their temple, their pyramid, whatever it was, was based on the belt stars of Orion, which point to the galactic center. Since 1851, when Greenwich became the new meridian marker for calculating longitudes on Earth. And this is a big change. It's, if you're an astrologer, it's a whole house. It's 31 degrees, 8 minutes, and 8 seconds 
separate, but what it meant was we got unhinged from the galactic center in our consciousness. That, you know, up until that point, a stone circle in Ohio was related to a stone circle in Zimbabwe. But when we got unhooked from this awareness of the three pyramids at Giza and their relationship to Orion and the galactic center, we lost the fact that we on Earth are oriented by biology and by spiritual lineage to the galactic center. And I just think it's fascinating because for the Egyptians, this meridian was the most important marker in the sky. It was sort of symbolic of splitting the heavens between life and death or east and west. And then the other thing that happened, when you think about it, was when we got taken off of the lunar calendar, and that happened in 1582. Pope Gregory the Thirteenth, I think it was, took us off the lunar calendar and put us on a solar calendar. And what that means is that the Roman Catholic Church disconnected the Western human from the biorhythm of the moon and the waters by which we are all governed. That's why in matrifocal traditions it was a lunar tradition. And there are still traditions worldwide in Judaism and certain Muslim traditions and others where still the moon cycle is part of the tradition even within a solar year. But a lunar calendar, when indigenous peoples who still maintain a lunar calendar rather than a solar calendar, it puts you into a greater awareness of your own biorhythm within your body. Because we're mostly water, so we're completely affected by the moon and the moon tides. So I just thought it was fascinating when I understood that these two acts, what I call them institutional domination, like the procession of, of empires, the Roman Catholic Church and the uh, British Navy, they unhooked us from our awareness of the galaxy, and they unhooked us from our awareness of our being lunar beings. Wow. Well, and at the same time, then um, industrialization started, and that takes us another step away from nature, doesn't it? Well, you know, industrialization yeah. per se isn't a bad thing because, you know, we everything is moving forward. It's a question of what we do with any of our tools. They in themselves aren't bad. It's just a question of what do we regard while we're building them. And and we're now right. at this new step, you know, as we move into this sort of computerized um, civilization, we have to be very mindful of what it is that we're building and what it is that we're sacrificing at the same time. So I think all of these things is, is no different than a kitchen knife. You can do a lot of harm with it or you can just use it to cut your dinner. Right, right. I understand that. Well, that that's fascinating. And And now that you're talking about it, that would, um, you know, moving our points of reference from, yeah. you know, a, a sky connection and disconnecting from a lunar calendar. Um, it's very subtle, but but uh, it permeates everything. Yeah, I feel that way. I, I'm yeah. really trying to pay attention to the lunar cycle in my own life work, you know, from the new. There are a lot of opinions, but the general one is from the new to the full moon is a time to plant your activities in the world, to go forward. You're expanding. See, I had an impression in meditation that our DNA zips and unzips between the new and full moon, and I believe this will be proven. You know, when they work on the genome, if somebody ever starts to think about the moon while they're doing this biology, they might see what I'm talking about. But if you look at ritual worldwide, the new moon is blessed, but the ceremonies happen on the full moon. 
I believe that that's why on the full moon our DNA is completely open and open to new imprints. So the, all of those ceremonies and vision quests and moon ceremonies and drummings and whatever they are, when they happen on the full moon, our DNA has been unzipped, is open for new programming. So then from the full moon back to the new moon, when the moon is getting smaller, that's the time to go back within, you know, and to really sort of review, refine, um, get quiet again. So if, if we sort of govern our lives a little bit more as Native traditions did and as Indigenous peoples who are still connected to the earth do, and their ceremonies are rhythmic in this fashion, it's very much in keeping with moving from new to full moon and from full moon to the new moon in a very conscious, useful way. Because certainly the animals are affected in that way, and that's what they do. Well, they've, yeah, I mean, they've been... They've been on on time and on the money since the very beginning. They didn't have to um, go back and remember something that had been forgotten because they never forgot it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating um, the the point you made about the their societies um, honoring the the women and the children. Uh, we really could take a a lesson from them. <clears throat> so I'm really looking at choice. Right. Um, I'm, I'm looking. If we have anybody that's got a question, um, and now's the time to call in before we uh, close the switchboard. So just dial 917-889-8292, and then as soon as you're in, press 1, and uh, we'll get you set up to come on the air and ask your question. So is there any other um, topics that you would like to talk about while we're waiting for that? I just think it's very important for everybody in your audience to appreciate that they're very powerful beings and that all of us can make a difference in the world even if we don't see the outcome in our lifetime. We're very impatient as a society, and I grew up, I was born in the mid-50s, and everything's going faster and faster, and people want things to happen at this accelerated rate, and while... The Maya would say we're now cycling every 30-some days a new influx of energy into the planet. Um, And we can feel this intensity, and there's also astrological explanations for what's happening and sort of the unraveling of things in order to rebuild something new. It's just to appreciate that sometimes it's the very simplest of thing you can do to smile at somebody. And we can't tell the reason that it will be so profound for another person. But if you get an intuitive sense that you bump into somebody in a grocery store or you see somebody struggling with, you know, carrying a bag and you feel like you really should help them, you know, don't be afraid to. Oftentimes fear gets in our way. And um, I, I have experienced several times in my own life where I really wanted to help somebody do something, but I was so afraid that they might end up hurting me that I didn't help them. Um, And I regret those two instances that I can think of. Um, And that happens to all of us all the time, that we're always being asked in our lives to choose selflessness or selfishness or a little bit of both, because that's kind of what we are as biocapacitors. You know, we're always receiving light and emanating light. And that's why in the new language, why people are talking about light and vibration and frequency is there's finally an arrival at what the mystics have always known and promoted for many civilizations when they had a much higher command of manifestation through frequency than we currently do. 
but we'll re-arrive at it. You know, I'm a student of Kabbalah, and I wrote two books on prophecy and the Kabbalistic tradition. And what they say is that we're still not, you know, the tree of life has ten spheres of activity, and they sort of look like little Christmas balls on a tree if you've never seen it. And the progression in terms of evolution is we've been coming down from the spiritual kingdoms into denser and denser matter. And then when we, as we say, take our elevator down to the basement, then the elevator can go back up to the penthouse. So we're still as a trajectory in terms of Kabbalistic prophecy in the down elevator stage. And we have 200 more years before we get to the bottom floor, which is called Malkut, <clears throat> which is our feet. It also is related to our um, to the female and the moon. So the prophecy in Kabbalah is that in 200 years, um, we will have already begun rising as an entire planetary community into um, our own understanding of protecting the kingdom, each one of us being co-creators and stewards. But while we're coming down, we're currently in the age of what's called Yesod, which is the generative organs in our covenant, and do we know who we are and why we're male and female and what we're supposed to do with our uniqueness internally. Um, but while we're still coming down and things are disassembling, there are already people going back up, and there are parts of the world already demonstrating what the future will look like. So I think it's just very important to be hopeful and to be an optimist and, you know, not to say that what's happening and in our own country isn't so disheartening, but to know that there's something called the greater good, and most often the greatest good is concealed in the darkest time and in the most challenging time. So even in our own personal suffering, the, the concealed good is generally the greater good. The good that, you know, when everything's going happy and we like what we see and we're having a good job and our children are happy and our grandchildren are doing great, everything's just whoopy wonderful. That's revealed good. This is Kabbalistic teaching from the Hasidic tradition that I'm a student of. And the concealed good is when we suffer. You know, when we lose a job, God forbid something happens to one of our children or, you know, maybe we lose an whatever it is, we don't feel good. In those moments, in those time spans, is when the greatest good is there for us to ferret out, you know, again, the silver lining kind of um, folk wisdom. But it's true. And so we can think of these times of change planetary-wide as very disheartening if we choose. Or we can think of it as an opportunity for rebirth. And that's what it is. I mean, it really doesn't matter how we look at it. It is an opportunity for rebirth. But we can suffer <laughs> through it or we can find the joy in it. And I, at this point in time, feel like stop arguing with the people that don't get it, who don't understand the love of the earth, who don't understand why we should stop polluting our natural resources, who don't understand the equality among people and species, and work with those who do. Because there are enough people planet-wide now who get it, who want to preserve the planet, who want to do good. And I feel like it's time to stop with the fighting of those who don't get it, because what we really need to do is to elevate the planet. And we can do that if, you know, just 7% of us do the right thing. And I believe there are millions on the earth who are ready to do that, can do that, and that's what we should each do, regardless of what it is we choose to do. It could be, you know, helping at your school. It could be helping with elders. It could be, I don't know, being an animal savior. It doesn't matter. It just means to do good. 
And I feel like, you know, the Trumps of the world, hey, you know, it's going to come out at some point and get rebalanced. And in the meantime, support the candidates that, you know, understand the earth and understand saving the animals and understand the ecosystem issues and do the good work. And that's kind of what I'm doing. At the ripe age of 64, I've stopped being the yelling, screaming, raging activist. And now I just really want to help everybody build up the good works that are going to make a profound change in awareness in this younger generation who are here to do the work. They really are. And there's wonderful astrology associated with these kids who were born between 2000 and 2018. They were born with Pluto and Sagittarius. They are visionaries. They are planners. They are educators. And they understand spirit. So they also understand BF. And um, it's very it's, it's delightful. As a lifelong activist, I started when I was 14, to see these new young ones come in and just stand up and say their words so strongly uh, gives me great hope. So let me just close with this one remarkable book that everybody should read who's involved in activism or wants to help young people know what to do or you have your own local community association and you want to know how to be successful. It's called The Eight Laws of Change. And it was written by a magnificent researcher named Stefan Schwartz, Eight Laws of Change. And in it, he wanted to know, he took 20 years to study what made for successful social changes, et cetera. And he studied um, the suffragette movement, um, public education, public health, Greenpeace. He discovered all of them were started by a few Quakers who wanted to see these changes. And what they found were there were certain principles that they operate by, and they're People all around the world operating by these principles, maybe they're not the same, but the, but the basic um, nature of them is the same. And one of the principles is, you know, to, to know that the work you're doing will go beyond your own lifetime and be okay with that. Um, not to have any attachments to the outcome that you want. Just put in the good intention and do the good work, but don't be attached to what the outcome has to look like. Um, know that you won't complete the work in your life. Um, know that everybody who's doing the work has a voice, even if all the voices don't have the same um, weight in the decision-making, but that everybody has to take part. Um, so, again, it's, it goes on and on, but it's, it's extraordinary. He looked at the movement that Mohandas Gandhi led, that Martin Luther King led. They're, of course, all nonviolent, eschewing violence from your own person, from your words, and from your actions. Um, and each instance in which these movements manifested these qualities they have lasted and that's why it took so long to tell you that but it's the eight laws <laughs> of change by stephan schwartz and um you can probably find him at my radio website with my husband 21st 21 st century radio.com that's 21 st century radio.com because like many, you know, we're a radio broadcaster from a radio station, but we also now have the benefit of the online community. And we download all, I mean, upload all of our podcasts for free. So we don't have all 30-plus years there, but we have a lot of them. Wow. So um, the website, you can, if you just put in, uh, in the search bar, 21st21ST, yeah. Century uh-huh. Radio. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then, the, then they can SP. find you. Yes, www.21st21stcenturyradio.com, and then my book website is whitespiritanimals.com. Excellent. Well, we are so grateful that you are who you are, 
doing what you're doing for as long as you've been doing on the planet and and helping people make these connections with the the wisdom of the white spirit animals and the um with the teaching the 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 guardianship everything that they bring to us thank you so much for opening this door for um a lot of people and our listeners are very much awake and in that in that uh, mindset of doing the good making a difference i'm sure they are so, i mean definitely like your program you know it's it's a wonderful thing i was a broadcaster and a whistleblower and did a lot of body politics against the world bank and the imf and clinton and bush administrations et cetera, et cetera. and it's nice not to be doing much of that work anymore i have to say and to be really focused on reminding each one of us that we are powerful co-creators, and that's why we incarnated. Um, and so whether it's somebody on the other side or somebody on this side, whether it's an animal in our presence or an animal in some other region that we never see, we really are all connected. We really are all one. Um, we're just having individual experiences of that one. Right, right. Well, it's just been delightful to have you with us, and um, I I've certainly thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom and all the uh, good work that you have done on the planet. And I encourage everybody to take a listen to 21st Century Radio and um, pick up a copy of White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change. So, Zahara, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. And um, the best to everybody in the listening audience. And remember that you're really an important human. That's wonderful. Thanks so much. Righto. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So uh, for all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. And until then, put your intent out there to be helpful and Remember always to count your blessings. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.